Hello, and welcome to season two of the London Writer's Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk to the New York Times bestselling author, Catherine May. She's the author of multiple books, including Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. We talk to Catherine about her journey to becoming a bestselling author, including how she wrestles with her manuscripts to create a narrative. And she says, we either resist the story that's trying to come, or we surrender to it in a radical way. Catherine shares with us what the concept of wintering means for us as writers and how we can find space for contemplation and rest through difficult periods. Catherine also tells us how she finds time to write, even when she's busy and in a chaotic environment, and reminds us why having time off is so important to our creative process, saying it isn't all about the typing words on the page. It's often about supporting your mind in general to have good quality thoughts. And finally, Catherine reminds us how the key to happiness might be found in incremental progress over grand ambitions. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Catherine May. There's a question we'd like to ask all of our guests. And if we can be holding this interview anywhere in the world, where would you love us to be? You, Parl, me, and 120 of our closest writing friends. <laughs> I would always, always be in South Devon at Garrow Rock. There is a beautiful hotel there that I can never afford to stay in. It's on the most beautiful piece of coastline that I know. And I'm always just completely at peace there. So I think it would be wonderful for us to get together in the super expensive hotel, use the spa facilities and have a little swim in the sea and talk a bit about writing. I mean, not too much, you know. We've, we've never held an interview <laughs> in the sea. That would be a first. Maybe we'll dip in in between questions. I am here for that. Like that is what I could offer you. Absolutely. Sea Love swimming it. interviews. That's great, yeah. Catherine. I'm there. I'm shivering <laughs> just thinking about it. So occasionally a, a book or an idea arrives into society's hands at just the right moment. And it seems like wintering your book has done just that. I mean, it's one of those books that it seems to be that it seems like everyone was talking about it when it came out and continues to talk about it from writers in this community to, you know, Krista Tibbet, who obviously you're on her podcast to I've heard venture capitalists in the U S talk about your book. <laughs> yes. And Wow. I'm curious, if, if we're curious, what's the most surprising moment or interaction that you've experienced as a result of this wintering fame, you might say, over the last several months or, or since it came yeah, out? Yeah, it has been quite weird for me. The Krista Tippett thing did tip me over, um, if, the, if it's not to the use of the word tip, because I'm a massive fan of the podcast. And I think that was the only one I got really nervous about, because I just thought about all these incredible people that have been on there. And then me, <laughs> I was really scared. That was that was quite surprising. And I think the other thing that really surprised me was I was shortlisted for a business book of the year award 
<laughs> which is probably where your stockbrokers or whatever venture capitalists have heard of me from. Um, and that one, I have a little trophy because I won the personal development category. And I was that really, really, really surprised me. <laughs> Wintering, the business book of the year. I'm sure you never would have foresaw that one. <laughs> no, that was, uh, I sort of rang my agent and said like, I don't have to be camera ready for the award ceremony, do I? Because I'm not going to win this. <laughs> you know? And she said, no, you won't win, but do turn up and be polite. <laughs> That's great. Love it. And so in your book, you talk about the idea of wintering and you say, there's this line, you say, we live a thousand winters in our, in our life or in our lives, some big and some small. Mm. What does winter mean to you? And, and what is wintering? Well, so, I mean, wintering is a word I've borrowed, really, from naturalists. It usually describes how birds and animals survive the winter. But actually, I've used it to think about the way human beings survive the dark periods of life. Really, it's thinking about the ways that hard times can come to us and the huge benefit that we can find in surrendering to that and, and kind of resting our way through it and finding space for contemplation and reflection and all those things that involve slowing right down, which has become a very, very difficult space for us to claim. So I always go out of my way to say that wintering is painful, difficult, awful. Like I'm not saying, oh, this is a, a wonderful time, guys, just cheer your way through it. But actually that suffering is actually quite functional to us as human beings, I think. And in the fullness of time, we look back on the periods we've wintered and see them as sites of transformation. And, and often you hear people say, well, it was a terrible time, but I wouldn't change it now. And, and so that's what wintering is all about, really. Oh, I love it. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. And it's so instinctive. As soon as you say it, it makes sense. Mm. How do we as writers write in periods of winter? What does that mean? Does that mean journaling, being kinder to ourselves? What might, what does that look like for you? Well, all of those things, really. I mean, I think I think writing is a really wintry career, you know, and often people's writing careers begin in a really wintry way. We endure like years of rejection and that hideous self-doubt before anyone pays any attention to us at all. You know, I think writers, if they can survive that, are really, really tough creatures, you know. But when I go through a writing hard time, I often take my foot off the gas, actually. And I know that's kind of a really uncomfortable thing to say to writers, but actually sometimes I stop writing for a while and I do that quite comfortably now. You know, if, if it's feeling forced, if it's feeling too, too hard, I will give myself a break and do something else very often. And that really helps. But yeah, I definitely find I've never been a journaler. I've never been very good at regular writing, but I do find morning pages helpful in a crisis. I find writing in liminal space really helpful. You know, like if I'm struggling to write, I'll often try and find some weird corners of the day, either very early in the morning or very late at night. And sometimes some weird places to write help me too. That's a that's a kind of old habit that I've had from going to all the different libraries in Cambridge and, and sort of landing in in the wrong libraries for the wrong subject that wasn't mine um, and I still kind of love to do that now so yeah I, I have lots and lots of ways to get the juices flowing again but it's often by taking my attention off my main project and either not writing or writing something that's like a, a flirtation with a with another book 
Mm. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm, I'm going to go back to this idea of just the broader wintering. And um, you mentioned again in the book that we can't always choose when winter might come for us, but we can choose how we winter mm. and how we create those spaces. What have you discovered that that looks like for you? Yeah, well, I think the main thing is acceptance, really. I think once we learn to accept that wintering is normal and inevitable it's not something that has happened because we've screwed up uniquely out of all human beings it's a part of our life cycle once we get there that means that we can develop a kind of mindset for wintering and a mindset that acknowledges that this is something that will run its course whatever we do you know we can't rush it unfortunately I've done a lot of interviews in the States this year, you know, with little local radio stations who obviously haven't had time to read the book. And they're like, come on then, Catherine, what are your five tips for, you know, <laughs> for shortcutting your winter? How do we short, shorten this wintering thing? Yeah, how do we shorten it? How do we win at it? How do we turn it into a, you know, a, a goal? And actually, I, I don't think that's the point at all. I think it's a long, slow process and it's full of different emotions every day. That is the very strange, wonky gift of wintering. And if you can develop a mindset that accepts that and digs in for the long haul and find small pleasures in that time, you know, it's full of beauty, even in, in deep sadness and melancholy. I think that, that you come out the other end with, with something, with a gift, really, with, a, with some kind of a gift. And that that's normally a change that needed to happen. It definitely resonates with me. I've had difficult periods in my life and I hadn't realised that I would call them winter periods and that there were periods of growth. As soon as I read it, I was like, oh, <laughs> I have a name for it. This idea of acceptance is interesting to me because we can accept it, but the outside world might, might still have expectations, mm. um, whether it's our boss or our partner or our parents or our family. Mm. How, how do we communicate that? Is it as simple as just talking about it, <laughs> what we need in those times? Yeah, well, I think it depends on the people you're talking to, unfortunately. I think some people are more accepting of that conversation than others. And, you know, we're still in a place in our society where it's very, very difficult to talk about dropping out for a while. You know, it, it feels incredibly vulnerable. It feels like kind of airing your dirty laundry. And it can cause enormous discomfort from the person that you're communicating with. You know, it can it can trigger something in them, which, you know, doesn't always bring about the best response. The problem with all of that is that if we don't set our boundaries early, when we when we can feel that pull of winter, when we know that we're beginning to slow down and we're beginning to stop coping with the, the rush of everyday life. If we can't do that soon enough then we get taken out against our will. You know, our mental health completely collapses or we fall sick or there's a, there's a whole range of things that seem to happen when we push on for too long in suffering that we're ignoring. And so I guess we're faced with a choice really of setting some, some boundaries early on and taking care of ourselves early on or the ground falling beneath our feet. So I, I really think if you can learn to identify it early, you can start taking a bit of a rest. You know, it's okay to empty out your diary. It's okay to disappoint people a bit sometimes. 
it's all right to cut back on commitments. Like so many of us are such joiners now, you know, we're going to a different thing every night and we're like often those of us with kids are often zooming our kids around as well. And we're spending our weekends kind of packed into events and families. And that's all just coming back at the moment. Like there's really horrible memories coming back to me at the moment of what life was like before all of this, when I was <laughs> zooming everywhere all weekend. And the truth is that sometimes we need to cut back on all of that stuff and some of it we'll miss and some of it we won't miss we don't have to be busy all the time sometimes we just need to sit still for a while I, I love I love that awareness you talk about mm. in the periods where we have a bit more space and time setting those boundaries being aware of things that we know aren't quite working mm. it's a really good reminder thank you I think every time I've had like a major winter grand winter I've seen it coming, but I haven't necessarily wanted to engage with that, but I've been forced into it, you know, and I think now I've learned to be a little bit more responsive at those early signs, you know, things like brain fog are a really big one, feeling tearful, feeling tired all the time, not sleeping, feeling sluggish, you know, there's all of those different signs and, and everyone's got their own ones you know it might be physical <sighs> I recognize them now and that's from bitter experience really but uh it's it's now become very important to me to back off when I need to mm, this is really great Catherine I'd like to read a little part of your book it's toward the end but I feel like you were writing it to writers uh, and I think people can probably resonate with this so you write toward the end about wintering there were times when I thought that I probably couldn't write this, that I wasn't up to it. Once upon a time, this would have engulfed me entirely for a season, and I would have emerged in a year or two, shaking my head and starting again. But here I am, and here it is. The only difference, the only reason I've finished this is experience, like you said. You recognize winter. Uh, you saw it coming. You looked it in the eye. You greeted it in paraphrasing what you wrote <laughs> at the end there and you said i had some tricks up my sleeve mm. what are some of those tricks up your sleeve you did mention some of it kind of recognizing you know the brain fog or mm. you know writing in liminal times and morning pages is there any other tricks that you discovered that's helped you yeah i mean goodness how long's your list i, th I think i'm also i'm a person made of strategies actually so <laughs> i'm just like this weird weird patchwork but before I tell you that, I have to tell you why this is, it's really interesting that you picked up that that was a message to writers. Because when I first thought about writing this book, I thought about writing a guide for writers and it just, it grew out of all control. So you've spotted something there that is a bigger truth than, than maybe you thought. But yeah, I, I was thinking about writing a book that was aimed at writers to help them through those really crappy times that we all go through. And I've actually, I've turned that into a course now. Instead, I run a course called Wintering for Writers, which is like, where I've parked all the writing-y thoughts that I wanted to go in the book initially. So there's that. But also the book was written in a kind of wild sense of crisis. I really, oh, I'm like the person that meets their deadline always a month in advance. You know, like I'm that, I'm that person. I'm never late. I'm always totally organized about stuff. But all of the stuff that's in the book had happened and it delayed me starting writing the book. And then when the, as the deadline approached, I, I just had to write it in this ungodly rush. I mean, the whole thing was done in like three or four months, start to finish. 
I felt totally terrified. I felt absolutely like the imposter syndrome was really present, but I, I felt like I was going to fail at this. And, you know, it was written in like soft play centres where my son played and in gyms and cafes and around the back of his maths lessons because I'd had to pull my son out of school it was written at weird times in the morning and often in the middle of the night like I'd get up at two and write for two hours and then go back to bed again I almost felt like I had to apologize for it in that paragraph like I'm I, that was like a message to my editor like I am so sorry I will do all the edits you need me to but here it is now you know and I'm glad we kept it in because there's a huge truth there, which is that sometimes the work that touches people the most is the work that is really, really raw and difficult. to. So, so there's that. So I wanted to tell you the background to that. But yeah, so there's strategies. So first of all, for me, it's about finding the times when I can be productive um, and making the circumstances that I can be productive in. So I like when I'm writing in these crazy like soft play centers with kids zooming around all around me and like noise and everything. I have a good pair of earplugs and I also use headphones with like natural noises in and that helps to get me in the zone. They're really important to me. I often write with sunglasses on too to kind of get that feeling <laughs> mm. that the world isn't assaulting me quite so much. I always uh, leave a paragraph unfinished when I stop writing, which means that I can dive straight in the next time and I can get some momentum. That really helps me when I'm trying to pack writing into tiny spaces because it, it means that I can maintain the flow from the previous day's work. I walk and I swim in the sea as much as I can. Like writing isn't all about the typing words on the page. It's often about supporting your mind in general to have good quality thoughts mm. and that means changing the space up it means resting it means moving your body it means letting yourself kind of sink out of thinking and into something more embodied that's really important to me but also like I took care of myself through all of that I made sure I, with, within all of that stuff that I was getting enough sleep that I was taking hot baths which are the things that I completely crave I made sure that I was eating well and that I was, you know, taking pleasure in things. Like, honestly, I wanted to get the book finished, but I wasn't going to do it at the cost of my whole self. It would not have been worth it. So I pushed myself to an extent, but I also looked after myself too and honoured my, you know, my needs and the needs that I was meeting in my family at the time. Sorry, that was a much longer answer than you needed, wasn't it? I just, no. I needed to tell you the whole background because it that was perfect. <laughs> that, no, that's, that's exactly, we're so glad you went there. This is what we're here for. We must have seen through, through that. Yeah, you, you spotted something. <laughs> your call out. I'm curious, and maybe, maybe you said it, but I missed it. Why was it a feverish three months that you had to get it done? Is it because the deadline, it had creeped and it was due? Or what, like, why was it in that short space of time? Yeah, so for people that haven't read the book as well, it's probably helpful to say that like the book had already been commissioned before everything that happened in the book. But so my husband fell ill and then I was ill and I had to leave my job and then I had to pull my son out of school because he wasn't coping. And so all of that pushed back me starting writing the book. And, and of course, it meant that I couldn't write the same book that I'd planned to write. You know, I would meant to write this book about wintering from a lovely distance, like looking back over moments in my life that have been terrible 
and drawing out wonderful wisdom. But I was left in this situation where I was having to write from the middle of a crisis. And I felt like a fraud, you know. <laughs> so by the time issue after issue had like pushed it back and back, I just was left with a tiny amount of time to write it, really. I honestly still don't know how I did it. It's not a very long book, which helps. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God you can get away with shorter nonfiction than fiction. But yeah, it was written in a kind of panic. And even like the week before it came out, I had this terrible sense that it must be an awful mistake and I had done something dreadful and that I just hoped I could recover from it with the next book. You know, <laughs> was literally where my mind was this time last year when it came out. <laughs> yeah. And if that's not a case for our expectations and the reality of what happens when it hits the world. I mean, how many times we think something's going to go really well and then no one cares. And then something we think is going to be a disaster and it explodes like wintering. We, we know so little. Yeah. And I've had that with books before. I mean, my first like mainstream published book, I'd had, I'd had a couple of small press books before, which, you know, well, you haven't heard of them, so they didn't do very well. You know, like my, my very first book, I think I made eye contact with everybody who bought it. I think it sold 80 copies and I sold them all personally. About 10 years ago, I was writing a, a secret blog about my sex life, actually. And <laughs> it got picked up. I was trying to write literary novels at the time. Nobody gave a toss about those. But of course, everybody suddenly was really interested in my blog got picked up by an agent. The book went to auction. There was like nine publishers bidding on it and all this. And it went absolutely nowhere, you know, like all of that fuss, it sold loads of foreign rights. It had some really big fans in the industry and that's kind of carried on sustaining me, I think, up to now. But my editor left the week before it was due to be published and that just killed it dead. I was like ready, you know, <laughs> I, was like, I was ready for that book to change my life and it just didn't, you know, and I lived through the pain of that actually it took me a long time to recover but all of that feeds into the to wintering I suppose right. <laughs> all goes in the pot yeah and gosh to think all the things that are outside of our control that we have no idea we talk a lot about that at the salon yeah publishing is really a very painful industry to be in you know you're so out of control sometimes it feels like gambling it's like a yeah everyone gambles yeah. will this book work will this idea work yeah. will this concept work well, until recently, I was working as a literary scout. I've, I've kind of knocked it on the head for now because I've been so busy. But, you know, you see that from the other side, you know, so scouts work in the international market. We try and pick up the hot books in the industry and sort of recommend them to our foreign publisher clients so that they can buy them for translation. And, you know, some of those hot books become hot in the mainstream market and they, they do as well as everyone says they do. But some of them, you know, you see them go by and they've sold at one of the book fairs for like 500 grand and everyone's been talking about them and you never hear about them ever again and other books you know everyone's gossiping about and they don't even sell at the fair because a chain reaction happens and someone that they didn't expect to bid doesn't bid and then other people lose their confidence and then the word goes around amongst people who haven't even read it that it's just not very good you really really see from the inside how brutal that industry is yeah yeah, absolutely. I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> I was a literary scout for, for a year as well. So, 
Oh, were yeah. you? Oh, interesting. So you know exactly what I know exactly like. what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to talk a little bit about the craft of writing. And you talked you talked about mm. these three feverish months. And I'm looking at your the, the chapters and how you've titled them, and they go from September. So they they, they t- take us from autumn through winter to spring. And within that, you have themes. Yeah. And I wondered how deliberate was that? So if you had these three feverish months, did you start with an idea of structure or were you just writing your first draft? Oh my God, I was just writing. And I wasn't even writing whole chapters. I was writing like sections of chapters. Full disclosure, it was only in the last fortnight before the book went was submitted that I realized I had the clever insight the very basic insight that actually if I just put them in order like (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know because I was I was trying to write these themed chapters and kind of jump about um and then I suddenly thought no I'm, I'm actually telling a story here and it felt to me like it shouldn't be a story it felt it felt too small actually you know like we're used to memoirs being about big occurrences and it none of my none of the stuff that happened was big but I I needed to tell this quite small domestic undramatic story in order and take myself through the the seasons as they ran. It seems so obvious now, you know, but I was trying to construct it very, very differently. Uh, and when I had that that realization, this massive relief came over me, and I I reordered all my weird little chunks of chapters smoothed the narrative out and then two days before I submitted it I I texted my friend and said I can feel another edit that's going to make it better but I haven't got time she was like go in there do what it takes you know like my writing buddy and so I, I did a massive cut at that point I just cut so much out of the book two or three days before it went in Christmas was really pissing me off anyway so Christmas went and <laughs> in the winter yeah I know it seemed like Christmas ought to be there, but apparently not. And yeah, so I was, if I'd have had that structure earlier, it would have really helped, but I didn't have the sense. I was just too crazed at the time. <laughs> and, and I'm curious if you were to, if you were to write another, another memoir, would you then look at structure first or would you still write? Okay. I haven't learned a thing because I'm just editing the first draft of my new book and I'm just finding the structure again. (laughs) I've done the whole thing again of writing random chunks and now I'm thinking what's the actual story I was trying to tell here and so I'm finding it again it's like a it goes in order I was trying to avoid writing about the pandemic but I haven't been able to avoid writing about the pandemic and actually as it turns out, all of the things that I had written about were referring to moments that had happened, that, you know, they'd been triggered by stuff that had happened over the last year. For some reason, I was trying not to say them. So no, I've, I haven't learned a thing in the words of Homer Simpson. <laughs> I can totally understand as well, it's hard. You have experiences that you want to share and maybe the truth is you need to go through it. Yeah. I quite like this phase. It's exhausting and it makes me mad. I mean, like half my family at the moment, I'm literally mad. I'm not able to do anything sensible. I've got no words. I can't do anything domestic, you know. I like this phase of the book where you're wrestling with these big chunks of it and it feels really muscular. It feels like a real engagement with narrative in a, in a very sort of almost physical way. I think this is my favourite bit, but don't let on to that because at the moment 
I am actually saying like, I'll never write a book again. I've learned my lesson. I'm completely crazy. What's going on? You know, I've cried three times today already. But I, you know, <laughs> but I, I think this is actually the bit I like. <laughs> so I'm curious about the idea of wintering and the theme of wintering that you pulled up mm. and whether that, again, like you say, maybe it came towards the end. And the, the add on question to that is, are you doing a similar, what, what process are you using for the current book then? Are you trying to think of a theme to, to hang the idea, the, the, the title construct on? Yeah, without talking too much about the current book, only because I'm like knee deep in it and I can't make any sense of it without dribbling. Yes, I, <laughs> this book has actually been the, the ship of Theseus because it started as one thing and it became completely remade into another thing. And it became, it's now become completely remade into a third thing. And I, I think I've actually ended up writing three books very gradually and just replacing all the books. Funny enough, today I just cut a chapter that was very much part of the second iteration of the book and that I suddenly thought it's no longer got a place in this as a different book. So, yeah, it's. it turned out I wasn't writing about what I thought I was going to write about actually nothing like there was a different story that was trying to creep out from between the lines and you know as writers we have a choice with that kind of thing like either we resist the story that's trying to come or we surrender to it in a radical way and let that that story out that's trying to be told and that's the approach that I always try and take you know that's not easy it's it's emotionally quite hard because you have to let go of a lot of things that you thought were certain in your narrative and you have to keep disciplining yourself to really really engage with what story is is happening and what's playing out in front of you rather than resisting and it's you know like I quite often notice myself resisting changing my text and I make myself get up and walk away from my desk for an hour because I need a little bit of time to accept what's happening <laughs> and to accept the work that's going to cause. You know, you you can't be lazy at this phase. You have to totally keep going back in and, and doing the hardest part of the work, even if that means rewriting everything. I particularly like those words, the, the, the radical acceptance. Mm. I feel like you're digging when you describe it. I feel like yeah. you're just constantly excavating the actual story. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, polishing away layers and layers. It, it, there is a lot of taking away from me. You know, I, yes, I build up the text, but the, I feel like my craft lies in the bits that I remove. You know, that's, that's always, yeah, sanding it down. <laughs> Curious, do you create any space between when you finish a draft and when you dive in to look, look at it physically, you put it away or time-wise or... Anything else that you do in between that? Ideally, I would, but I've not left myself enough time again. The book was due in in February and because of like pandemic stuff, uh, well, partly because of pandemic stuff and also partly I got a sort of let off because the, of the success of wintering have meant that I'd done three months solid promotion. And my editor actually rang me and said, you're going to need a deadline extension, aren't you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> But I, what I didn't tell her was I hadn't really started yet. We won't tell. Um, <laughs> or I had written two other books that were completely irrelevant, but um, I hadn't started the actual book. So, yeah, I, I'm at last minute again. But in an ideal world, I would most certainly leave the draft for a month. Except that as soon as I finish that first draft, 
there was like this little series of woodpeckers in my head that already knew some of the changes I, I wanted to make and I needed to go back in and make those straight away so I don't know if I could have walked away even if I had the time to be honest I'd quite like to walk away at the moment though. <laughs> thank you for your honesty and this isn't meant to <laughs> to make you feel bad about your approach it's no this is the full truth it's fine <laughs> which is so good so Catherine, I'd like to turn to one of your earlier books, The Electricity of Every Living Thing, which tells the story of you coming to terms uh, with being diagnosed with autism. And we're curious, do you feel that autism have given you superpowers as a writer in this career that you've chosen? And if so, what, what are they? Yeah, I, hate, I hate the superpowers thing. We have to move away from talking about autistic superpowers as, as a society. Mm. I know it's really tempting and obviously like I would love to step in here and go yeah I have superpowers the problem with that is that actually it tends to be that autistic people are either seen as having superpowers i.e being savants somehow and therefore that they're like treated as the acceptable autistics or they're seen as having a lack or an absence or a deficit and that's hugely problematic for our community particularly if you you fall into the deficit group mm. But it's also problematic for the, the supposed superpower people too, because like what autism really is, is it's now kind of called a sort of spiky profile. It's, it's having like things that you're more good at than the average alongside things that you're less good at than, than average people in a very unpredictable way. You know, and for every autistic person, that profile is different. And so, you know, like while I can, you know, write books and talk quite happily through an hour here, I can't book a doctor's appointment. Like I can't get my way past the, the phone system. And that's the kind of crazy, weird levels of, of, of ability that I, I live with and that I didn't know I was living with before I knew I was autistic. And, you know, like autism isn't one thing. However, my profile <laughs> is that I'm like highly verbal. I was hyperlexic as a child. I, I read and wrote very, very early and I had like a much bigger vocabulary than you'd have expected a child of my age to. And I was like obsessed with doing things like reading the dictionary. So all of that stuff has definitely fed into my ability as a writer and my urge towards writing. But I had to work probably harder than most other people do to make the transition between children's writing and adult writing, you know, towards the kind of writing that is good for a, for a young person and the kind of writing that might be, you know, published. Um, and, and so that, that gap was much harder for me and sort of really learning to understand narrative and learning to kind of be entertaining and things like that. Um, and so, you know, it's like in some ways it would fit into the superpower idea, but it's also made stuff really difficult for me. And because I read, I, I sort of really struggle to read social structures um, and to really understand like networks and hierarchies and, and sort of the interrelatedness of people. I've struggled with the networking end of writing and it took me a long time to understand how to be a writer like how you connect up and who you talk to and when so mm, that's that's where the, mm. the superpower thing becomes like that's that's where it breaks down really as much mm. as I'd love to tell everyone I was super Catherine well thank you for sharing and, and thank you and apologize too if that was insensitive 
wasn't wasn't my intention. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's really important to talk about it because actually, like for a long time, that's been the way that we compliment autistic people, you know. But I think the more time goes on, the more we feel like it's like a bone that's been thrown to us by people who think they're better than us, you know. And so I, I'm kind of quite mm. uncomfortable with the superpower thing now because, it, you know, a lot of the people that want to tell me I've got a superpower are not being kind, actually. Not you, though. You're being kind. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. And thank you. This is great to have this conversation too. Yeah, it's it's just so important that we all do. That's you know, it's a you know, like we learned that this year with Black Lives Matter, didn't we? About how important it was to have really, really honest conversations about what actually is going on between us mm-hmm. all. I'm committed to that with autism and you know, particularly for black autistic people who get the the full whammy of of everything thrown at them. You know, I love it when people ask me questions about being autistic because it gives me the chance to honestly tell you what it's like rather than to carry on Mm. with the stereotypes. Thank you, Catherine. Maybe we'll zoom out to your your writing career a little bit. Curious, if you can recall a particular moment for you, maybe early in your career, where you thought, okay, I, I might be able to make a go at this writing thing. I think I can do this. I think this can be a career. Was it one of your books coming out? Was it a, your first paid gig? What was that for you, if, if there was something? It wasn't an exact moment, but I started a writing group in my local area, more or less as soon as I started writing. They're still going now, actually. They're called the Midway Mermaids. And hilariously, I met some of them the other day and said, oh, I started your group. And they're like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I've been forgotten to history. Um, but you know there was a group of us writing and we were submitting work to each other and it really encouraged me to submit my work to sort of journals and publications and very early on I was being my work was being taken in and nobody else's was you know to be brutal and I thought okay I feel like I've got something I feel like I'm getting an early encouraging response you know, I wasn't being terribly ambitious with where I was submitting, but people were interested in reading what I had to say. And that that gave me a huge amount of encouragement. It was it just enough to to really fully commit, you know, and to keep going and pushing. And it, it gave me the faith. Well, I say faith, you know, we all know that we don't have loads of faith in ourselves most of the time. But it just gave me that bit of faith to keep pushing to a full length manuscript, which is always so important early on in your career to kind of get to that bigger word count, which feels very intimidating. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of quite a diffuse moment, but I, I, I felt it in my gut early on that people enjoyed my work, which was just wonderful, obviously. It's great. Uh, really resonates. So another question. Uh, so we, we do a goal setting workshop at the beginning of every month. And we have writers imagine their writing career is like a mountain that they're trying to climb. Okay. We get them to imagine like, what's at the top of that mountain? What's the hope? What's the dream? I'm curious, or we're curious. When you're starting out, was there like a mountain mm. that you were aiming for? Maybe that metaphor doesn't, didn't work for you, doesn't work for you. You know, was it becoming a New York Times bestselling author? Was it being on a <laughs> podcast like Krista Tippett that would be like, yes, when those things happen, I will have made it. That's what I'm aiming for. And of course, you've achieved those things. Curious, did you have anything like that, a place that you were imagining to go as a writer? 
I, I wouldn't have dreamt of those dreams. I still wouldn't have done six months ago, honestly. My goal was to publish a novel like that. It was literally that. Like, first of all, it became, can I write something this long? Like, that was a major question for me. That, that 80,000 words that I was trying to hit just seemed fantastical when you've only ever written 4,000 word short stories. And so when I finished that manuscript and it was 130,000 words because I'd panicked so much, I'd like written every sentence twice in two different ways. But just just meeting that word count was like such a great moment. And then I shaved it way, way back <laughs> to, to the 80 that it needed to be. And then, and then my goal became getting it published. And when I got it published, there was a little bit of me, and I still feel like it now, that felt they could kind of die happy, you know? <laughs> and actually, life after meeting that goal has been actually more pleasurable because I'd hit the thing that I wanted to hit and I hit it quite early on. And so then after that, it becomes exploratory. Like, what can I do with this? And what do I want to do with this? You know, what, what next every time? In lots of ways, I haven't had a big goal since then. Like that was like 15 years ago, maybe. But yeah, I, I've not aimed big. Sorry, everybody. I've not, you know, I've not set those big stretch goals. Instead, I've just thought, well, what, what interests me now? What's, what fascinates me? And honestly, like the whole New York Times bestseller thing. I mean, I still, I still feel weird about it. It doesn't feel real because when would that feel real but I the first week because your editor rings you to tell you you know they never ring you but they ring you to tell you you're in the New York Times bestseller and she'd warned me that it could happen and I'd because it's American time I'd totally ignored her and gone to bed um, at my normal 9 30 and I was sleeping peacefully and I got up in the morning and there's all these messages on my phone she's like it ended up with like well screw you then I'm excited <laughs> but um <laughs> We, we spoke the next day but even then I kind of thought my my first thought was like oh god this is going to be so embarrassing because I'm going to drop out of the New York Times bestseller list next week and I'm going to be like the the world's most fleeting bestseller and it was only after the second week that I was like oh I feel better now I feel like the other NYT bestsellers aren't laughing at me <laughs> I stayed for five weeks in the end which was awesome wow, that's <laughs> <I> incredible <laughs> That's incredible. I'm so glad as well that you've enjoyed reaching those goals. That that yeah. there's something very comforting in hearing that. Oh my god! Imagine being the kind. I mean, I know there's loads of writers like it, but imagine what it must feel like to be inside the head of the kind of person who expects to meet that goal, and how disappointing it is when you know, or whatever, or you're. It's never going to be long enough, or like I'm thrilled. I remain thrilled about it, and I will remain thrilled to the day I die. Excellent. I love it. That's brilliant. <laughs> what brilliant advice for us. I was just going to say the power of small goals, you know, and, and expectations. It's refreshing because I think we'll, we'll introduce yeah. this now into the goal setting workshop is it doesn't have to be about those big goals that then you beat yourself up with when you don't hit. Maybe it is that small 10 inch hurdle or whatever it is for you at the time. I love that. Catherine. Yeah. Thank you. The I can die happy now goal. Like what is that goal? And actually you know, that threshold might be fairly low. And that's awesome because it doesn't mean to say that you you don't carry on after that. It's just, why not reach that plateau where you go, oh, this is nice. Great. Thank you, life. <laughs> Beautiful.
Wonderful. And I wonder, I wonder if that it brings me to, to my next question for you, which is around a reference you make to Alan Watts and the importance of present yeah. time. And there's a little extract that I, I really liked. And you just said, uh, or I think you were quoting him and he said, the only moment we can depend on is the present, that which we sense and know right now. But obviously that's hard. And, you know, and thinking of, I definitely have spoken to writers who have hit best-selling lists and are mm -hmm. not happy. And I wonder if it's the, the pull of the future or, the, and the, mm -hmm. or maybe the distraction of the future and the pull of the past. And I get the sense from talking to you that you, you try to be in the moment. And I wonder, mm -hmm. if, maybe you've touched on it before with the going for swims and um, <laughs> resting. Is there anything else you do to try and stay in present time in the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that mindset is the result of years of meditation. You don't get there straight away. It's not an effort for me either. I, I'm not trying to stay in the moment. Like whenever I think about that, I freak out actually. But actually like years of having a meditation practice that I go back to again and again has given me this sense of, of now, of deep engagement. Actually, that's, this is a lot coming a lot in my new book but with kind of very deep engagement with what's right in front of me and the, the commitment to pushing away fears about the future and, you know, worrying about the past. If it appeals to you, I know it doesn't appeal to everyone, but it's kept me afloat through so many different things. Great. Thank you. Mm. Great. Catherine, thank you so much. This has been, this has been beautiful. We wish you all the all the success and everything. Is there anything that we we can do to help you in, in your career? Is it buy the book, read the book, anything else that we can do? Yeah, come and say hi whenever you can. I love chatting to everybody and, you know, it's just brilliant. I, I love helping. <laughs> this always delights me. Like if I can reach out and help, I'm always delighted to. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Right. And where's the best place for people to re to find you, follow you? Do you have a social media website? I'm on Instagram as Catherine May underscore, and I'm on Twitter as underscore Catherine underscore May underscore. It looks better when you write it down. Um, but yeah, I'm around and about. You can Google me. Well, we're very honored that you spent this time with us. Oh yeah, sorry, someone's reminded me in the chat. I've got a podcast as well. Please do listen to that. It's called the Wintering Sessions. I'm not very good at this. <laughs> well, that is our session done. What else, Parl? Anything before we wrap? That's it. I'm just thinking of the ocean that Catherine mentioned in the beginning, where we first started, where we decided to be your favorite place in the world, that wonderful hotel. We'll chip in, share a room together, go swim in the ocean. Sounds like a dream. Right. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. 
We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.